Well, we want to welcome you tonight to, uh, to Plum Creek Chapel. This is our final installment of uh, our series on the greatness of God. And so uh, I want to remind everyone that starting next week on Tuesday, we will shift our midweek service at the church here to Tuesday night. And we're going to pick up a new series. We'll call it Prophecy Night. It'll be from 6 to 7.30. Uh, it will be live streamed. So those of you that are watching by live stream or watching this video in recording, uh, mark your calendars for January the 31st. And every Tuesday thereafter, we will have Prophecy Night. We're going to uh, start out with a theme of the time is now. Why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. And I put together... Uh, as of last week, I had 13. Now I've got 15 as I'm meditating and thinking about this throughout each day. I, I add to this uh, list, but 15 ways in which the stage is currently being set for the return of the Lord. Now, this differs a little bit from my Spirit of the Antichrist books and series because that's all based on the characteristics of the Antichrist. And as you know, there were seven of them, uh, big, big categories, and we took those, overlaid them with current events, and we talk about how the stage is being set with regard to preparing the way and paving the way for the Antichrist. These are broader categories, just things going on you know, in the world, geopolitically, technologically, economically, and so forth. And so uh, it's just, I don't know how long this is going to take us, but we may, we'll probably undoubtedly spend more than one week on each of the categories as I put together the, the thoughts. But we want this to be interactive. We want this to be an opportunity at the end of each session for you to ask questions, make comments. Uh, but I believe that now more than ever, we need to focus on the setting of the stage, even the last 24 to 48 hours, there have been some major developments in the geopolitical sense with Russia and Ukraine and China. And uh, we just we just really feel, uh, you know, someone said years ago, you can kind of hear the sound of the hoofbeats, you know, in a reference to the white horses that we will be riding on as we come back with Christ to establish the kingdom after the tribulation. Um, so I think that's a great metaphor. And I think I think we're, we're headed in that direction. So uh, this is our last night to talk about uh, the greatness of God. We're going to finish up with three additional uh, characteristics or attributes, but I do want to mention a couple of podcasts that we did this week. One was uh, yesterday on Beware of the Thief, and that was our weekly conversation with Randy. Randy's certainly no stranger to the Plum Creek uh, family, but that was a pretty powerful one. In fact, he's already uh, reached out and said, we may need to do another one this week on Friday, depending on how quickly things uh, develop. But uh, you definitely don't want to miss that. Uh, really chock full of some great uh, information. And then today we did one uh, with a lady who's become a dear friend and colleague, Maggie Witherby. Some of you may have met her. She runs the Elbert County Stands Up. We've hosted an event here with her. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with them in a couple of venues. Uh, but we, I just had her on to talk about preparedness and biblical concepts of preparedness. It was really a fun uh, hour of discussion with her. And we called that one Aware, Alert, and Active. And that was, again, just posted uh, this morning. So uh, be sure and check out the Not By Works website. Lots of uh, good activities and, and events and things are coming up. But let's dive into our study of the greatness of God. So this is eight session number eight. And of course, we talk about how the attributes are those distinguishing characteristics of God's divine nature that are the essence of God. And as I was thinking about tonight, I, I wanted to kind of introduce it uh, this way. Uh, you know, what would we know about God specifically if he had not revealed himself to us through the written word? 
So I'll throw that out there as a question. What are some things that we would know about God based on general revelation? Yeah. Creation. Okay, creation, be more specific. Uh, nature, uh, mountains, animals. And what would that tell us about God? Uh, that He is the he's, creator, right? He's the creator. Yeah, exactly. So, as it says in Romans, there's no doubt. Absolutely. Romans comes to mind as a great passage for, uh, for that. So, um, basically, what we're talking about, what Paul's referring to here, is general revelation, and that is the fact that God has revealed himself to mankind, in this case, as Paul mentioned, through nature. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Uh, what are some other things that we might uh, be able to discern about our Creator? So, to, to be more specific, let's imagine it's the year, you know, 2000 B.C. Remember, the Bible didn't start getting written until 1446 B.C., so 500 years before God chose through Moses to begin delivering to us His special revelation, you're Abraham or Isaac, or Joseph, or somebody, and you're communing with God, uh, but what would you know about God if, if you didn't have His his written word? Can you think of anything else? Yeah. Trustworthy. What's that? So you trust Him. You would trust Him? Yeah. And, and what... What in the world, you know, that you've seen and experienced, again, this is you 2,000 years before Christ, would have engendered this idea of faith and trusting him? I'm just, I guess I'm thinking about when Abraham went to sacrifice his son. Okay, so if you were Abraham, uh, she's commenting then certainly he saw God provide on Mount Moriah there when Abraham um, obediently offered Isaac. Um, I'm trying to be a little more general. That's a kind of a esoteric question. I get it. But um, I guess what I'm driving at is that God revealed himself to creation the moment he spoke the world into to existence. You know, he talked to Adam and Eve, for example. And uh, by the way, what are some other ways prior to the written word of God that God, you know, talked to, to communicated with people? Can you think? Prophets, good. Well, he appeared through, he appeared to Abraham, he appeared yep. to... Um, Sometimes he appeared uh, himself uh, and gave a word to them, but not just through prophets. What's another avenue of God's revelation? Yeah. Through dreams. Dreams, good. Isaac and the, the staircase, the ladder. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the uh, staircase with Isaac. Um there's one big one you're kind of missing, yeah. Convicting the Spirit. Yeah, the Spirit of God would move on the earth and He would come upon and anoint kings and so forth, yeah. I was thinking more in the sense of uh, a feeling of guilt. You talked about the animals have no such a concept as guilt. Very good. And we wouldn't have it either yeah. if the Spirit wasn't yeah, so the great point Gary mentioned, you know, the, the concept of guilt. So we can even broaden that out to just the concept of, of a conscience. And after God did reveal himself to us through the written word, he talks about that in Romans chapter 2. Uh, so that, that the human conscience is a, an avenue of God's general revelation. Um, but going back to 
prior to the Bible, God's special revelation, meaning a direct word from God. We talked about how he used prophets to speak to people, the Spirit of God, dreams and visions. One, one other one that was pretty common. Theophany. Which are? Theophany is what the Bible scholar in the fifth row said, but uh, what, what, uh, what's a theophany? That's, that's the pre-incarnate pre appearance of Christ. Remember, God, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He didn't come into existence at Bethlehem. Uh, so theophanies would be one. And what do many people think... Uh, how, how are those theophanies described in the Old Testament? An angel. Angel. Uh, person. Yeah, but and a, not just any angel. Angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord. Who said that? There you go. That's it. Yeah. The angel of the Lord, many people believe, was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But in any event, it, it was a special messenger of God. So you had angels. That's the word I was looking for when we were talking about visions and dreams and prophets. But God would use angels to deliver messages but you know as time went on remember the earth is six out creation is six thousand years old so we had roughly uh 2600 years of existence prior to god unveiling him his himself to us through the written word and during that 2600 year uh, span uh you know, God revealed many things to many people, and there are many general things, like we started out talking, the nature and providence and the, the rising of the sun, the, the changing seasons, the, the crops getting their rain in due season. All those things made people on earth recognize there's a creator. But what, what happened when God began to unveil himself in the written word is now we have very detailed, specific information about this God that we worship. And, and that's why the, the Word of God is so, um, you know, so powerful and so important. Uh, one of the things I'm learning about uh, this gentleman who recently passed away, and uh, I'm going to be doing the funeral here coming up, but in talking with his sons, you know, he had, this man had such a passion for the Word that whenever anybody would ask him, what's your favorite passage of Scripture? He would always say, oh, that's easy, Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. In other words, the whole Bible. In other words, he understood the importance of the whole counsel of God and, and, and recognizing that this really is a special book. And so I just wanted to remind us of that because these are not just random things that theologians sit around in a coffee break room somewhere and jot down and think of. This is They come straight from the Bible. And God put them in here so that we would get to know Him better. And so we've talked about, uh, for example, the eternality of God, uh, which sets Him apart from any created being. His self-existence, which also means that He's independent of anything and everything that He created. He's dependent upon no one. We talked about His holiness. You know, holiness is a, a watered-down concept like so many concepts today, uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we think about holiness as just, you know, in a human sense, a point of comparison, like it's a continuum. But the biblical concept of holiness is one of a kind. God is the only one who is uh, holy. Uh, we talked about God's immutability, that He is unchanging. He's devoid of all change. He cannot improve. He cannot deteriorate. He is absolute perfection. We talked about how He is infinite. 
He's not limited by time or space or matter. We talked about his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful. No matter what other powerful things that we may have, and certainly in the spiritual realm, there is a, a lot of dark power there. Uh, Paul talks about this uh, many times in the New Testament. Uh, we see a lot of examples of it in the Old Testament. Uh, Satan's a pretty powerful enemy. Uh, but he's not omnipotent. By the way, I had a got a funny uh, text. I got to share this with you. Um, you will. I hope you'll get a chuckle out of it as uh, as I did. Um, so this was a text from a server at a restaurant, sharing an experience that she had with one of her uh, customers. And uh, she says, this lady gave me her food order, and I repeated it back, and I told her, that comes to $6.66. Well, the lady evidently was a Christian because the lady re replied, oh, no, I don't like that total. Uh, you better throw in a, con a corn dog. <laughs> and so this, man, this waiter comments, well, surely this woman is an inspiration. She's out here fighting off the powers of Satan with a corn dog as her weapon of choice. <laughs> and I thought, uh, good for her, you know. But uh, no other being is, is, is as powerful as God. He is all-powerful. And then we talked about how God is omnipresent. Same thing, He is all-present. Uh, I talked about on an interview today that I did about how Satan cannot be everywhere at the same time. And so he relies on his demons to do scouting missions and come back and report to him. He relies on his human accomplices, the Luciferian elite, to kind of fill him in on what's happening. Now, Satan is an angel, so he's not constrained by uh, space. So if he wants to know what's going on, say, in Ukraine, and at the moment he is spatially located, let's say, in, in Denver. Uh, by the way, I think he spends a lot of time in Denver the way, I, the way I see it. But anyway, if he wants to, he can just instantly go over there. But he can't be in, uh, in, in what did I say, Ukraine and Denver at the same time. He can't be in two places at the same time. God can. Nothing can hide from God's presence. And then God is omniscient. Same idea. He's all-knowing. Uh, known to God from eternity are all His works. His understanding is infinite. And then we looked uh, a couple of weeks ago at God is love. Uh, love describes God's essential essence. And we had some really good discussion about uh, the biblical nature of unconditional love, which is the Greek word what? Unconditional love. Agape, right. Uh, and then uh, we looked, I think it was last week, no, uh, two weeks ago, God is righteous, um, meaning that he is the sum total of all moral excellence. He is the standard for moral excellence. And then we looked last week at God is trustworthy, which means he can be counted on, that uh, he is, he's never dishonest. He, he is in, you know, everything that God does is based on truth, and truth means uh, correspondence with reality, right? Uh, that's a very important principle philosophically that is biblical, and that's the correspondence theory of truth, and it relates to how we interpret Scripture. For example, if I say this coffee cup is black, or at least it is now, uh, and, and, and that's, that corresponds with reality. If I were to say, no, this is red, that's not trustworthy. That's not truthful. I mean, it, it, it's, it is what it is. Now, Satan has been attacking language 
uh, and deconstructing language. And, and that's why we have such a mixed up world today, because words no longer mean what they mean. That's why a male can be a female, a female can be a male, a male or a female can be both, you know, all these weird things that have no meaning. Uh, but truth is agreement to that which is represented. It's called the correspondence view. And God is completely trustworthy. And we spent some time last week talking about the, the fun story of uh, the uh, Balaam and uh, Balak, the king of Moab, and the prophet Balaam. And in that context, we learn that God is not a man, that he should lie. And so now we want to turn to three more, just to kind of wrap up this series. And that is, the first one is God is just. God is just. Justice, uh, when used of God, is a name that we give to who God is, the way He is, what He does. It's not an external standard to which God must uh, measure up. So this concept of justice gets a lot of attention in Scripture. And frankly, in these great last days of deception, it's getting a lot of attention too. Um, but what people are doing is they're claiming that something is unjust because it doesn't meet their expectation. And that's just kind of the way we use it. So, you know, if you take a stand for truth, but they disagree with you and it disagrees with their bias, then they feel they've been treated unjustly, right? But that completely marginalizes the meaning of justice. Justice is not a man-made standard or criteria or, you know, level. And if something falls short of that, we say, oh, that's unjust. The best definition for justice is to simply say justice is whatever God does. So there's not an external standard that existed for all of eternity so that the eternal creator of the universe who existed for all eternity has to conform to that standard. He is the standard. So you, you never want to really go down the road of, of saying something like, well, justice requires God to do this, or justice demands that God will act you know, thusly. Whatever God does is just. When God acts, He's simply acting like Himself. And he, he has to be true to Himself, so God cannot do something that is contrary to what He's already said in the Word of God, uh, because that would make Him a liar and untrustworthy, and it would violate several other of His attributes. But So it, it's okay to say, you know, God would be unjust when he's not acting like what he's revealed to us in his word he will act like, because that standard is God. But there's no external standard that God must measure up to. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Whatever God does is just. Yeah. Talk about just and merciful. Just, just and what? Merciful. And merciful, yeah. So... Uh, obviously, mercy is one of God's attributes as well, um, as is you know gracious and loving. We talked about love. Um, he is all of those things at the same time. But uh, you know, for example, they all kind of come together around the redemptive plan of of the Bible. And so, uh, you know, God's God's word demands, and God, you know, God told Adam and Eve even before the Bible was written. We, we hear the story in the Bible, which God inspired holy men of God to write under the inspiration of the Spirit so that it's infallible. But go back to the garden 6,000 years ago, and God told Adam and Eve, In the day thou eat thereof, you shall surely die. 
And that death, of course, means separation. It means separation both physically of the soul from the body and physical death, which up to that point before they sinned never existed. But it also meant spiritual separation of the soul from the presence of God in a literal place of torment called hell. So how then can God still be said to be just when in fact he provided a way for Adam and Eve and for all of humanity for that matter to not have to pay their own penalty for sin. Well, he's just because the penalty was paid. And, and you see justice, grace, and mercy all coming together in the supreme event of all mankind, and that is the cross. Because somebody had to die to, to, to you know, show that God is just. Jesus, the perfect man, died. So the penalty was paid. Um, so, uh, you know, I've often talked about uh, John 3.16 as illustrating all three, justice, grace, and mercy. First of all, let's define them. Justice means getting what you deserve. Well, you know, we deserve death. Somebody took that death in our place. So the payment was made. Justice was served, right? Uh, grace means getting a free, undeserved favor or merit. A free gift, that's grace. And then mercy means the withholding of judgment, the withholding of punishment, not getting what you deserve. So justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting a gift you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting punishment that you do deserve, right? So John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. There's justice. The penalty was paid. Blood was shed. Somebody died. That whoever believes in him should not perish, there's mercy. We don't have to go to hell. We don't have to perish in a place of torment for all eternity. But have everlasting life. There's grace, the free gift of eternal life. So justice, grace, and mercy all come together at the cross. Any other thoughts before we look at some scripture to support this attribute? So uh, Psalm 7 is a Davidic psalm written by King David. God is a just judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. So we never have to worry about God's judgment being flawed or being paid off. You know, like the controlled Supreme Court of the United States. You know, we don't know who's paying them off or who's blackmailing them or why they're ruling the way they're ruling. We know they are paid off. And if they don't play ball, they get killed. Uh, just ask Antonin Scalia. But, uh, you know, every federal court, every ju uh, judge, every even local courts, are susceptible to some type of injustice. You know, there's a whole industry out there. And there have been some great movies about this that, again, art imitates life, uh, even some that are based on true stories, showing how easy it is to pay off juries. It doesn't take much. And it's not always payoff. I'm using that term in the sense of rigging. It can be threatening. It can be blackmail. It, it, it can be you know, all kinds of different ways. So as good as our justice system is in America, uh, I call it the criminal injustice system because, you know, it, it's, it's one uh, injustice after another. Many innocent people go to jail. Uh, many innocent people are put on death row. Um, uh, uh, many guilty people get off scot-free. Uh, not perfect. Why isn't it perfect? Because it's made up of imperfect human beings. But someday, the, the righteous judge, the just judge, will sit on the throne, Jesus Christ himself, and he will rule with a rod of iron, meaning with perfect justice. 
And so we don't have to worry about God being paid off or things being rigged. An anonymous psalmist said in Psalm 99, the king's strength also loves justice. Uh, You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Jacob there, a metonym for Israel, God's people. Um, And then uh, we could go to Romans, back to Romans 1, where Paul, talking about uh, the depravity of man, um, and uh, he, he talks about how we know the righteous judgment of God. It never errs. It's never flawed. Um, in Romans, Paul is quoting here Exodus thirty-three nineteen, when Moses met God at Mount Sinai after the whole golden calf incident. You remember that? Um, and God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. In the context, Paul, who who quotes God's statement from way back in Exodus, Paul is making the the argument here that no one can claim God is unfair because he chose one nation, Israel, to be the apple of his eye. Um, I've been thinking a lot about Israel lately, just in some of my prophetic studies, and it really is amazing how hated the Jews have been through the centuries. I mean, it is unreal. Uh, I mean, it goes way beyond just Hitler, as atrocious and horrific as the Holocaust was. I mean, these are some of the most despised people in the world, and I believe it's because they're God's chosen nation. Satan hates God, and he hates God's people. And by the way, who are God's people today? The church. Not that we've replaced Israel, don't misunderstand. Israel is still God's chosen nation, and someday they're going to take center stage again after the rapture during that 70th week of Daniel. And guess what's going to happen? The wrath of Satan manifest through the Antichrist and the false prophet is once again going to be turned upon God's chosen nation. And he's going to, you know, try to kill them all. That's why Jesus warned the future the tribulation generation of Jews, that when you see the Antichrist set himself up in the temple and, and, and perform sacrifices and demand that the world worship him as God, you should head for the hills because at that point he's coming after you. Um, Israel will experience relative uh, safety during the first three and a half years, at least as it relates to the Antichrist's you know, reign of terror. Um, But after the midpoint, three and a half years in, from that point on, he's going to turn his sights on on Israel. So, yeah, Israel is just uh, amazing how much they have endured. And and that's why it's so meaningful and significant that after World War II, Israel was given a homeland again and began to return there. Now, they're not returning in belief, uh, but it's setting the stage of the great end times regathering that so many of the Old Testament prophets talk about and that Jesus himself predicted in Matthew 24, 31. So, um, but right now, guess who wears the name of Christ? Christians. And uh, so Satan is merciless. And because he hates God, he hates anything that God stands for. So he's attacking humanity in general that's what the whole Luciferian transhumanist agenda is all about, attacking the image of God and man. But more specifically, he hates the church. And, you know, if you're a believer and you're not experiencing spiritual warfare, you got to wonder why not, because Satan's not going to spend his time on complacent, apathetic, marginal 
Christians. He's not going after the apostate church. He's going after those that are proclaiming the word, who are preaching a clear gospel, and uh, who are taking a stand for truth. Uh, so anyway, that's the context there is that Paul is explaining that you know, God is not through with Israel. There's a future for national Israel. The time Paul is writing here, he's uh, 23 years into the church age. And so now, you know, it was already God's, you know, present day program. Uh, the church, Jew and Gentile in one body, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the bride of Christ. And people might have begun to wonder, well, has God forsaken Israel? Has he forgotten about them? Are they still going to get their kingdom? And Paul spends three chapters here making the case very clearly that, no, God is not through with Israel. The, the deliverer, Christ, in, in chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, is going to come out of Zion. He is going to inaugurate the kingdom someday, just as God promised he would. But we learn a little bit about God and his justice in that context. Uh, Peter says, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Uh, again, Without partiality there, it means we never have to worry about God having an ulterior motive, you know. Um, you know, every human judge, no matter how objective they try to be, is going to be impacted by their own bias and their own partiality. Now, in a perfect world, they shouldn't be because in our country, the law is based on the Constitution, which is you know, sacrosanct, and you can't just dismiss it whenever you want to. I talked, I don't remember if it was today or yesterday, um, I did two interviews today, one that hasn't aired yet, and then I did one yesterday and one this morning, and I they're all kind of jumbled together in my mind, but I, I talked about, you know, the reality that in our country, we have taken to uh, dismissing and discarding the sacrosanct laws of the Constitution with an imperious wave of the hand like they mean nothing. Now, this isn't new. We've seen this many times throughout our country's history. Abraham Lincoln completely thumbed his nose at the Constitution, for example. But uh, today, uh, you know, ever since uh, Friday, the Friday, April the 13th of 2020, when the president at the time uh, declared a national emergency, which is still in effect today, both he and our current president have been able to point back to that and say, we don't care what the Constitution says. Because there's an emergency, we are going to force you to stop worshiping God on Easter. We're going to force you to you know, lose your job if you don't take this injection. We're going to force you to you know, not go here. We're going to force you to wear certain things you know, on your face and those types of things and violate our rights right and left. And the premise is, well, we understand there's a Constitution, but you know, sometimes you've got to set the Constitution aside for the greater good. Well, then what good is the Constitution? The Constitution, by its very nature, is supposed to give inalienable uh, you know, rights that can never be taken away. And the same way the Bible, for believers, by the way, is supposed to be our unadulterated uh, standard that can never be dismissed. And yet in the apostate church today, many churches are just summarily ripping out pages that they don't agree with, you know. Uh, oh, you think homosexuality is okay? Well, let's just rip out all these passages. And, you know, you think, uh, gender surrender is okay in the transgender movement. Let's just rip out all these pages. And yet they claim to still be Christian, still be promoting the Christian worldview. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of parallels between 
what our country is doing with its standard, the Constitution, and what Christianity is doing with its standard, uh, the Word of God. Uh, but we don't have to worry about God ever setting aside any infallible standards. He, he judges without partiality. And so it's pretty easy to see how we can apply this. Because God is just, we can be confident in His sovereign choices. You ever make a decision, a tough decision sometimes, you know, um, and this comes up in a variety of contexts, parenting uh, for one, uh, and you, 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 want, you walk away wondering, did I do the right thing? Anybody ever been there? Did I do the right thing there? Was that the right decision? Of course we do, right? Because we don't have the mind of God. I mean, we have the mind of God revealed in His Word, but sometimes it's tough to take a principle that is a timeless principle that's revealed in the Word and apply it to a certain situation. Well, God never has to question, did I do the right thing? And that means we never have to question, did God do the right thing? And so sovereignty, which is another one of God's attributes we didn't cover in this little mini-series, but uh, sovereignty should be a place of rest and comfort, not a, 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 an attribute of God to be feared. And unfortunately, a lot of bad teaching has turned sovereignty into something to be feared. Calvinistic theology, for example, turned sovereignty into either God chose you, you know, you're one of the lucky ones, or God didn't choose you. Uh, and that means people don't spend their whole life wondering, am I elect or not elect, you know? Um, but God's sovereignty is really a, a place of, of, of refuge. Why? Because whatever happens, whatever happens, we know God is using it. It wasn't a mistake. God never, you know, looks down from heaven and says, boy, I didn't see that coming, you know. God is just and he's sovereign. And, and so we can be confident in his sovereign choices, even in terrible crises. You know, uh, we can say, you know, uh, this isn't God's will in the sense of God never is the author of evil or the author of sin. But God uses all things together, even in this broken world, which, by the way, the world that we live in now is not the world God created. It's the world we messed up. Right. So. This fallen world under the curse of sin, uh, sometimes bad things happen. Uh, we can be confident that God and His sovereignty is still going to use them somehow to accomplish His purpose, right? Uh, you know, and that, that's, a, that's a comforting place to be. And it, if you've walked through, and we all have, tough times, tragedies, loss of a loved one, uh, very trying times in your life, you know that in the moment, it's hard sometimes to remember that you you you, you kind of are shaking from the the reality of that moment, whatever has happened. But as a believer, as we begin to go to the Word and begin to see more clearly and, and try to understand what's happening in our life through the teaching of God's Word, then we begin to say, you know what? I don't know why. I don't know how God is going to use this. Um, I don't understand it, but I know God is God. And he is just, and there, somehow this is going to, you know, be for his glory. So I just think because God is just, we can be confident in his sovereign choices. We can also look forward someday to the evening of the score during the day of the Lord's wrath, that seven-year tribulation. Because sometimes when, what, when we perceive things to be, you know, an injustice, and there's no shortage of injustices in the world today, it's not that God is looking the other way. He's just waiting. Right. And we can count on the fact that 
all of the inequities of life will someday be caught up. You cannot run from God. That was the big lie that God told Adam and Eve, or that, excuse me, Satan told Adam and Eve, the serpent. Uh, Lucifer said, you can sin and get away with it. You will not surely die. Go ahead, eat the apple. God doesn't know what he's talking about. You're not going to die. And that's the same lie that's been repeated now for 6,000 years by, you know, unbelievers and the enemies of, of God. They continue to think they can flaunt God's word and his laws and get away with it. Uh, well, guess what? Someday it will all even out, ultimately at the great white throne judgment, when all unbelievers of all ages will be resurrected to meet, you know, their judgment when, God, when Christ sits on the throne. Uh, so, uh, God is just. Uh, we've got two more to do here. God is spirit. Uh, God is spirit. He does not exist in physical form. Um, and, uh, you, know, you know, a body like what we have localizes, right? Um, you know, we, we do not believe that, you know, you can separate body from soul other than at death so that, you know, I can have this out-of-body experience and be floating around and go appearing to people and scaring people. I mean, that'd be kind of fun, really, but uh, that's just not the way the body works. We are a, a bipartite being, the material and the immaterial part of man. At death, which again, death means separation, the immaterial part of us is separated from the material part of us. The material part goes to the grave, and if you're a believer, it will be resurrected at the rapture. The immaterial part goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. If you're an unbeliever, the material part of you goes to the grave. The immaterial part of you goes immediately to a place of torment. Remember what Jesus talked about in Luke 16 with the rich man and Lazarus. And what did Lazarus say? Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially it was something like, it's hot over here. You know, could you send someone to dip their finger in some water and touch the tip of my tongue? Because I'm in torment. In fact, uh, Jesus specifically says the rich man being in torment cried out. So uh, that's the separation that happens. Uh, that's the only time that separation happens. But with God, there is no body. Uh, I mean, Christ, the, the, the Son of God, came and put on human flesh. That's the great incarnation, one of the great mysteries of, of Scripture, uh, one of the great uh, antinomies. The, uh, I was reading something this week in, in preparing for our sermon on Sunday in Acts chapter 21 and 22. And, you know, most theologians agree, and I would agree, that the two greatest, you know, antinomies, remember what we talked about the word antinomy means? anti namas against law or against logic the two greatest truths in scripture that seem to defy logic are the trinity three and one and the hypostatic union christ is fully god and fully man that, that that's that is an antinomy precisely because normally a human being cannot kind of bifurcate into both and 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 we don't so a, a body localizes uh, but God is, as a spirit, is everywhere. And the great proof text for this is from Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, when he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And, uh, you know, that's why, contrary to what a lot of pagan religions, especially the ancient religions back in the ancient Near East, taught where you know, you cease to exist, 
And since they don't have the spiritual component, the eternal component, they would worship statues and rocks and other things that don't have a, a spiritual component. Um, but, but that's what separates God, the Creator. As Spirit, we have to worship Him spiritually. We don't worship Him through you know, symbols and through lighting a candle and through reciting chants verbally. We worship Him in the spiritual realm. And even the children of Israel understood that or should have understood it. it was clearly revealed to them that the the uh, rituals that they went through the festivals the feasts the sacrifices those were all shadows of the ultimate reality uh, in the same way that when abraham offered isaac uh, on the altar there wasn't anything in and of itself about the wood or the fire or the stones or any of that uh, or even the ram in the thicket uh, that had intrinsic value. It was the, it was the portrayal. The, uh, the that was a shadow pointing to the reality that God would provide a lamb. And in fact, that's where we get uh, the name uh, Yahweh Jireh, or sometimes transliterated Jehovah Jireh, God our provider, was from that incident. So God is spirit, which means it, it kind of underscores His self-existence. There was no prior cause for him you know every other thing that has physicality is created right not just humanity but of course you read the creation account you've got plants animals sea life sun moon stars all of that um, but god is eternal so it kind of underscores that um, because god is spiritual it enables us to worship him as i just said through non-material means so we don't have a need for icons um or rosary beads, or anything that somehow supposedly has intrinsic value within them. Um, God's spirituality means that He can provide inner assurance for us. If you look over at Romans 8, give me a second and I'll get the verse, but Romans 8 is a very comforting verse because um, if you look in verse uh, 12, this and this is in a section of Romans where Paul is describing the Christian life and what we, you know, once we get saved, how we are to live out our relationship with the Lord. And he says in Romans 8, verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Uh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as of us as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. In other words, the Spirit of God... I just realized I can put this up on the screen for those of, that are watching uh, at home. Uh, so, uh, you know, the unbelievers are not led by the Spirit of God. Uh, you know, they don't have the Spirit of God. So let's go to Romans 8. I think we're in about verse 15. Uh, he said, verse 14, he says, For as many of you as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by, which, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So the spirit that we receive the moment we trusted Christ permanently indwells us uh, is what he's talking about. And look at verse 16. This is the one that came to my mind. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So if God wasn't spirit, we wouldn't have that inner assurance. We would just be left with nothing but 
the the synapses in the brains and the and and the, all the physiological aspects of our created being, but we have this spiritual component that is dead in trespasses and sins, but made alive, regenerated the moment we place our faith in Christ, and then that gives us a connecting point, so that God, who is Spirit through the Holy Spirit, uh, can assure us, and so. You know, there is a a sense in which, you know, the doctrine of assurance does have a subjective component. It's first and foremost objective. We get our assurance based on the objective empirical promise of Christ who said, if you believe in me, you shall never perish. Period. End of discussion. We don't base our assurance of salvation based upon our actions and our, you know, how good our life is and are we acting like a Christian. That's the way a lot of people uh, you know, treat it, and that's why they can look at people who are not living godly lives, and they say, "Oh, they're not a Christian," because they're basing assurance on behavior. No, ultimately, our assurance is based on the empirical promise of Christ. However, secondarily, uh, you know, the Spirit of God can give us that reminder. It can give us that, you know, witness to just sort of encourage us that you're my child. Has anybody ever felt that sort of still small voice, that convicting yet convincing uh, presence of the Spirit that sort of, you, you gen- for me, I, when I feel that, I generally respond with gratitude. And I think, you know, thank you, Lord. You know, thank you that you're there. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you that I'm, a chi- I'm your child. Uh, that's what he's talking about here. But God could not do that uh, if he wasn't, uh, you know, a, a spiritual being. It's it's what allows his spirit to bear witness with our spirit. Um, so the Trinity. Yeah. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are they all spirits? Well, we're about to get to that. Okay. So that's our final one for the night. But um, uh, in fact, let's just let's move on to that. So we talked about God is just, God is spirit, and then we want to close it out with uh, one of the standards of orthodoxy, one of the key doctrines of Scripture that if denied, it, it, it classifies you as a heretic, and that is God is one. Uh, God is one numerically. Okay, That's what the word means. And this is what set Israel apart from all the pagan nations. When God called Israel, well, when He called Abraham, let's go back to Genesis 12, and ultimately called the nation through Abraham's descendants out of Egypt, uh, he said, I, the Lord, am one. And uh, there's nobody like him. You know, uh, you know, every other religion worships either, you know, a polytheistic concept, multiple gods, right? Or, you know, let's take Islam, for example. Well, you got Allah, you got Muhammad. Don't let anybody tell you that's just kind of their representative, God the Father and God the Son. They both have power. They're unique. They're not one and the same. Ask any Muslim. Is Allah the same thing as Muhammad? Absolutely not. But you ask us, and, and we don't even have to answer because we can let Jesus answer for himself. John 10, 30 says, I and my Father are what? One. So the oneness of God. God is not part of a team of gods. He's not part of some council that gets together and by committee rules the world. Uh, he's not a composite being that can be kind of separated out into parts. Part of him goes here, part of him goes there. He is one. And the key passage on this comes from Deuteronomy 6, where Moses is essentially providing a, 
a commentary or an exposition, an explanation of the Ten Commandments and, uh, and, and all that they mean and stand for. And he begins that by giving what the Jews call the Shema. It's the Hebrew word for the first word in this passage here. The word here is Shema in Hebrew. And he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is the word Lord there. You can tell because it's all caps. Um, so this refuted the polytheism of the day. You know, the, you, 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 and even later on, you could think of, uh, you know, not just the ancient uh, gods, but even the Greek gods, the Greek pantheon. Before that, the Egyptian pantheon. Uh, uh, but it also refuted in the day when Moses was giving this under the inspiration of the Spirit, henotheism, which is the worship of one God without denying the existence of other gods. It's kind of like pluralism today. You know, people say, well, um, I'm okay with you believing in God. I just happen to believe in Buddha. <laughs> you know, well, that's a contradiction. You can't believe in someone who says, I'm the only one, and simultaneously believe in another God when, when you know, your belief in this God would be proven false. Yeah. So when the Shema says the Lord, Lord is one, you're talking about one unique God. One unique God, one being. One being. But as Christians, when we think of the Lord as one, we think of the Trinity. Correct. And that was... True in the Old Testament, too. Let's look at uh, another passage here. Um, if we go to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis one twenty-six. Whoops. What do we read? See it right here? I'll highlight it. Let us, see how the word us there is capitalized? Uh, it's the word elo, well, it's, it's the pronoun, but uh, you go all the way back to uh, Genesis 1, and in the beginning, God is the word Elohim, which is a plural form of that Hebrew word. Uh, but let us make man in our image according to our likeness, right? So that is speaking of the triune God. But that's what makes this, as I said a moment ago, one of the great mysteries, the great antinomies, is you, how can you be three but one? Um, and any uh, other uh, religion or doctrinal explanation that somehow tries to suggest that you know, God is three different people, you know, like Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, Mormonism, for example, is uh, violating this you know, key standard of, uh, of orthodoxy. So going back to the Shema, um, you know, basically this became Israel's confession of faith. And, and, and they would say it uh, all the time. In fact, to this day, devout Jews still say it twice a day, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And when you really get right down to it, you know, any, any other religion that brings in all of these components of, of ways to get to paradise, ways to get to heaven, ways to have eternal life. You know, it's, it's basically acknowledging that their God isn't enough, that their God needs help, that their God has other 
component parts. Um, but let's go to the New Testament. Paul in Ephesians says there is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and all in all. Right? One God. Uh, he said to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and men, the man Christ Jesus. So how do we get the concept of the Trinity then? Well, uh, we don't have time to look at all the proof texts, but it's, it's a series of theological synthesis comparing Scripture with Scripture and recognizing, for example, that you know Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Well, there you go. Uh, you could go to, uh, uh, well, I'll put it up on the screen, Acts chapter 5, uh, where we see uh, that the Spirit is God. So all you have to really do is uh, demonstrate that God the Father is God, Jesus God's Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God, and you've proven uh, the Trinity. So let me see if I can find where this is. Uh, this is Ananias and Sapphira. Am I remembering it wrong? I, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. I thought that was chapter 5. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. So I just skipped right over it. So uh, remember Ananias and Sapphira in the early church, you know, Barnabas, who became Paul's partner in the missionary journey, sells some of his land and gives the money to the church to help the church, the early church. Uh, and Ananias and Sapphira saw that he had done that, and they said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. We want to get kind of the pats on the back for doing that. So they sell their uh, land, but they lied about it and, and claimed that they had given all of the proceeds to the church, but in reality... They kept some of it back. And so Peter says here, Ananias, you know, why have you, uh, why have you, has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Remember that? So who did he lie to? The Holy Spirit. And then uh, Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to who? God. Wait, Peter must have made a mistake. He didn't, because he said he lied to the Holy Spirit. But then he said he lied to God. No, the Holy Spirit is God. So again, this is where theology, which is the process of comparing Scripture with Scripture and formulating you know, doctrinal truths, is so uh, critical. And so we can go through again and again and see this example of proving what we see in, in uh, rudimentary form all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 when God speaks in the plural uh, sense. So uh, there's a great... Uh, let me go back to our presentation here. There's a great diagram that's been around for centuries that I think still to this day is the best uh, way to uh, kind of articulate this notion of uh, the Trinity. And it looks like this. Uh, so you've got God. That's who we're talking about, right? God, the eternal creator of the universe. God is the Father. He is the Son. He is the Spirit. But yet God is not the, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And obviously any antinomy is going to be very difficult to diagram. You know, it's like trying to demonstrate that 2 plus 2 is 5. I know that's easy today in this common core, you know, world of, of compulsory government schooling, but in any logical sense, you, you can't do it. Uh, and so uh, all diagrams and all analogies fall short, but this is a good one. Yeah. Uh, C.S. Lewis 
uh, put it interestingly, I thought. Uh, he said if you think about it three-dimensionally, in the first dimension you can have a uh, straight line. Okay. And that's all. You all right. two parallel lines. In the second dimension, you can have intersecting lines. So you can make a square. Yeah. In the third dimension, you can draw multiple squares. So if you make six squares, you're drawing a cube. It's still one cube. Yeah. It's still six squares. Yeah. And it's still straight lines. Yeah, so the comment is about, you know, C.S. Lewis using the analogy of dimensionalism, uh, you know, a straight line, an intersecting line, and then a, you know, cube. And, uh, and that's been, you know, the, the geometric analogies are pretty fascinating when you think about how geometry really plays a role in, in a lot of things. You know, a lot of the Bible speaks in terms of mathematical dimensions. Have you ever stopped to think about how much of that? Is the case you know you think about the, the dimensions of the temple, the dimensions of the ark. I mean the ark of the covenant. I mean the dimension of Noah's ark, and and there's just something there that is really fascinating. We we talked about it during our study on Sunday mornings some time ago with the dimensions of Ezekiel's temple, and um, and you know that's in there for a reason. Uh, anybody heard of any other analogies of the Trinity that might help conceptualize this concept of the oneness of God yet the threeness of God? Yeah. Water, ice, and steam. Yeah. So if I said, what's H2O? Most people would say water, but actually that chemical compound can exist in three different forms. Water, ice, or steam, right? Vapor. So, but it's one, one chemical compound. Uh, anything else? Oh, the three-leaf clover. So St. Patrick, so that was uh, one plant, but three leaves. Yeah, I mean, what's that? Yeah, pretty simplistic, but hey, it's St. Patrick, right? So we don't want to be too harsh. Um, uh, we might get seven years of bad luck. No, that's a broken mirror. Never mind. Um, yeah. Oh, he was? Oh, by the way, I meant to eat. Did you get the diagram I emailed? Did, did you show it to Suzanne? Diagram? Yeah, I sent you a little uh, meme that someone sent me. Oh, I want you to get that because it was. I wanted you to show it to uh, uh, well, let me you. Suzanne. No, no, I, I'm always willing to be distracted to, to have a chance to pick on cats. Um, so it shows, it shows, uh, I wish I could find a way to show this. It shows Noah and the ark in the background, and it says, I'm only supposed to take two of each animal, but my wife insisted, and there's like a thousand cats leaning over the edge of the ark, right? So I immediately thought of Suzanne. By the way, I, I got a really nice letter uh, yesterday from someone in Utah, four pages, wonderful letter. I hope they're watching this. I wrote them back already. Uh, they wouldn't have gotten it yet, obviously, because it just went out today, but uh, super sweet man, and he was talking about some of the false beliefs that he's run into up there with Mormonism, and and he says they believe that in the eschaton, you know, someday animals are going to rule over man in cer certain segments, and how you treated them is going to greatly impact how they judge you. And then he added, a. you could tell he listens to me because he added a comment. He says, you're going to be in trouble if the cats are your judge. You know, so I thought Suzanne probably would echo that sentiment. But uh, uh, another, any other uh, analogies? Because I've got one. I just want to see if anybody else had come across it. Again, all analogies are 
they are what they are. They might help us conceptualize it, but ultimately antinomies have to be just taken as fact, like we talked about with sovereignty and free will. You can't really have both, yet the Bible teaches both, so we accept it. We accept the hypostatic union, that Christ is God, yet he's man. And we accept the Trinity, that God is one, yet he's three. And the illustration I've heard is the illustration of a male, M-A-L-E. You can be a father, you can be a son, you can be, you know, a husband, you know, that kind of a thing. So um, it's still one person. But, but again, all of these, even with the ice and so forth, you're talking about component parts, which by definition, this is not the case there. So uh, if we think about God's unity applied, essentially, and this uh, the reason I decided to end with this one, is it shows that we never have to fear an internal revolt with God. You know, every other religion, you've got competing gods. You've got Greek gods killing this and killing each other and vying for who's on top. You've got, you know, Satan and his angels vying and uh, trying to, you know, you know, win certain battles. And but you never have to worry about that. God is, uh, you know, completely unified, and all that God is applies to all that God is. In other words, uh, this is one of the reasons why. I'm careful in how I articulate what Paul meant when he talked about the restrainer being removed in the tribulation period, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Familiar with that passage? And uh, he talks about during the Antichrist reign of terror, how, how the restrainer will have been removed. And I can't tell you how many times I hear people over and over again, not just you know lay people, I'm talking about scholars who should know better, talking about how the Holy Spirit is going to be removed from the earth. You ever heard that? That's not possible. Why? Because all that God is applies to all that God is. God is a spirit, and we already said God is uh, omnipresent, right? So what Paul is talking about there is the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit in and through the church. And when the church is removed at the rapture, it doesn't mean the omnipresent spirit of God is somehow no longer on the earth. It just means that his work in and through the church which is a restraining influence now, is no longer going to be here. And indeed, just think about for 2,000 years how many times believers who have the indwelling Holy Spirit have had a positive impact and influence on things in this world because the Spirit of God led them to do so. And they were you know, in that sense, the Spirit of God was a restraining influence through the church. So anyway, we'll end with that. All that God is applies to all that God is. And again, many more uh, attributes we could look at. I encourage you to check out uh, some great theological books like uh, Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology and his section on theology proper. He's got a whole slew of discussions of attributes of God. Paul Enns in the Moody Handbook of Theology has one as well. Uh, and I encourage you to continue this study on your own. Now, don't forget, next week, we will no longer meet on Wednesdays. I encourage everyone to come out, if your schedule permits, on uh, Tuesday nights for a new initiative that we're calling Prophecy Night at Plum Creek. Uh, and it'll be from 6 to 7.30, a little bit different format, but always focused on prophetic events and things that are happening in the world today. And our theme is going to be, The Time is Now, Why Bible Prophecy Matters Now, more than ever. All right. Any closing thoughts or questions or comments? Yeah. Um, why, why do you have to uh, meet on Tuesday and not Wednesday? What's the reason? 
Yeah, we're meeting on Tuesday so that other people in the greater Denver area who might have church obligations on Wednesday uh, can come. Uh, we want to open this up to the community. We hope we outgrow this space, and we even have to have an external space at some point. But if you recall, during our, my series on what, what in the world is going on, or I think that's what I called it, uh, uh, we were packed out. And so there's an appetite right now for, you know, Bible prophecy and for such a time as this, as I'm calling it. And we just want to make that available to as many people as possible. Uh, a secondary issue is just the fact that my travel schedule, uh, it's a little bit better if I am not right in the middle of the week having an obligation because a lot of times I've got to be on the East Coast or the West Coast and we drive, as you know, because we pull a trailer. Uh, and if I can you know, leave on Thursday morning, that means I can't really make it some places by the beginning of a Friday conference. So there's just a lot of reasons. But the main reason was we just uh, we want to reach a broader audience. So any other questions or comments? All right. Well, you guys have a great rest of the week and we will look forward to seeing you on uh, Sunday.